Merry Christmas. That's all I got? Let me try this again. Merry Christmas. As you know, we've been in this uh, series um, of Advent and looking at Christ and His coming and what He accomplished in His coming. Week one, we talked about He was the very words of God. In the very words of God, He established everything. That's His incarnation. The word uh, incarnation means to become flesh. The God, um, the Son of God became flesh on Christmas morning. He wrapped on human clothes, if you will, to come and be with us. And that's what we just sang about. Emmanuel, God is with us. As they were singing. I got choked up and I thought to myself, the reason I got choked up is how often do I miss that God is actually with us? Like he's not over there somewhere. He is very much here with us in this very moment. God is with us. That's His incarnation. And in His incarnation, we talked about that He fulfills the three primary roles of the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king, that the prophets were given by God to speak and declare the truth about God, to bring judgment to God's people, to show them the ways they were going and how to repent and come back to Him. And then we looked at uh, the priest, that Jesus is the greater priest. That He came and unlike the Old Testament priest that would continue to offer sacrifices, and though those sacrifices did nothing salvific for them, we were waiting for the ultimate priest who would ultimately sacrifice Himself. And His blood would cover the mercy seat that would give us hope. And this morning we're going to look at the greater King. That gives us joy. I heard this uh, this week as I was studying and preparing for this. Um, if you've ever noticed, every great story, it comes out of the book of The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. If you've ever uh, heard him or read him, he's an amazing uh, theologian. But he talks about this idea. If you've ever looked at stories, they all kind of have the same outline. There's this great and mighty enemy that's conquered a kingdom and the kingdom is waiting for a conquering king to come and set them free. Uh, sometimes it looks like a damsel in distress. She's waiting for her king to rescue her. And I, I began to ponder and think about that. Is that not true for us? And I wondered why do we uh, view ourselves as uh, those waiting for something, waiting for a king, and yet we're never completely satisfied. I believe it starts, if you will, turn with me. We're going to get to Psalm chapter 2, but I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it talks about this, that God had established rule and He had established a kingdom, if you will, the Garden of Eden. And then for the first five days and he talks about all that he'd placed and gotten ready and it said it was good it was good it was good it was good well then the, the land that he made needed a king and that's what he says to adam he tells adam in chapter one or verse uh chapter one verse 28 he created all this and then he says this these few little words And God blessed them. This is He's talking to Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over it. 
So in all of us, in creation, God has established us and called us to be kings. And yet something's gone off the rails. Because in that moment that God established us as kings over all of creation, we thought that we were the ultimate king over all of creation. And you see that play out in the rest of the Old Testament narrative. That's why God wiped out all of mankind at the flood. They thought they were kings and they thought they could rule over everything and have to be submitted to no one. That's what we see at the Tower of Babel, that these men thought they could reach God so they could become God, become the ultimate king. And then we see in Samuel, let's turn to Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We just looked at the life of David, who is uh, the, the very representation of Christ himself. But in Samuel chapter 8, it says this. Remember, God had led his people out of bondage and into the promised land. And then they begin to multiply and begin to gain traction. But this happens in Samuel chapter 8. It says this, that the people of God wanted a king. And this is what they say. They come to Samuel, the great prophet, and say to Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel was not happy about it. And he says this. They want a king. Now anoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But these things displeased Samuel when they said to him, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have re not rejected you but they have rejected me from being what? King over them. So God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, allows the people to have a king. And then you read the rest of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. You look at all these wicked kings. And there's a few splattered in there, some righteous kings, but for the most part, there was wicked kings. Which brings us to Psalm chapter 2. The first point I'd like to make comes out of verses 4 through 9. We have received the king. And you and I are not the king. But we have received the king. He says this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. I'll come back to that verse that's very important the Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury verse 5 as for me this is God speaking I have set my king on Zion my holy hill we have received a king he goes on to say this I tell you the decree the Lord said to me. Now, this is the, the writer saying this, but it's projecting as if Christ is saying this. This is a very messianic psalm. It's not just a psalm about King David. This 
psalm is about the future king to come and the God is saying already, I've already established my kingdom and my king to rule over my kingdom. We have received a king. He says this. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. I'm going to give everything to you, King Jesus. All of it will be his. And it all is his. Now we have received a king who sits where, does it tell us in this text, on the throne. Do we believe that? We have a God in Christ Jesus, the ultimate king that is now has established his kingdom and he sits and reigns on the throne, which means everything in all of creation cannot happen without his divine blessing and authority. And I wonder, do we really believe that? He says this, the Lord said to me, you are my son. This is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Remember at his baptism, God said this about his son. When he came up out of the water, he said, this is my son whom I love. And then at the, the Mount of Transfiguration, he says it again. And then in Acts, the Apostle Paul talks about this passage. And they're all pointing to the fact that we have a king that is reigning supreme over all things. He says, I have an anointed one. You know what the word anointed one means? It's where we get the word Messiah from. It's where we get the word Christ from. So when we say Jesus Christ, we are ultimately saying Jesus, the anointed one. Well, who did the anointing? Not Christ himself, but the God who established him as the anointed one on the throne. So, church, this morning we do have, whether you like it or not, we have a king who sits sovereignly. He is the greater king on the throne. But here's what's true. Just as much as we have a king that sits on a throne that reigns over all things, we have come to resent the king. Is that not what he says in verse 1? Now we'll go to verse 1. He says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The word rage and plot have to do with this idea of going against something. When you plot and you have revenge against something and you rage against something, are you not upset with something? And he says right out of the gates, verse one, do the nations, why do you plot and why do you plan? Why do you hate the king? And it says this in verse two, the kings of the earth have set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together. Many scholars believe the word king and rulers have to do with uh, back in the New Testament where Jesus goes before Pontius Pilate and, and Herod. Pontius Pilate is represented as the people. King Herod is represented as the king. And he's saying, why do you, Pontius Pilate, why do you, Herod, counsel together? Remember, did they not counsel together to, to bring death to Christ? And he says, why do you counsel together against who? The Lord's anointed one. You see, this is also true. We hate the king. Every one of us on this planet has hated the king. 
We, we have to understand that God is sovereign and reigning over all things, and that's who He is, but who are we? That's true about Him, but now we must talk about what's true about us. We hate the King. I believe it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Why do we hate the King? Uh, I love what Dr. Uh, uh, Mr. Spurgeon says about this text. He says, we have in these three simple verses a description of the hatred of human nature against Christ of God. We hate the king. And now why do we hate the king? He gives us the answer. You've come against the Lord and you've come against his anointed one saying this. This is the reason that we hate the king. Let us burst our bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, the reason we hate the king is we think we are suppressed by the king. You see, when we look at the Old Testament and we see all the, the, the regulations, all the laws, what people thought was, man, God is, is out to restrain me. And so we fight against that. It's in our nature to fight against that, is it not? Who in this room likes to be restrained? No one. This might not go over well, but I'll tell the story. It's one of those parts in the, that aren't in the notes. I'm like, I'll just go with it. So yesterday I was playing with Cedar. And he was hiding under this chair. And so I just simply put a little bit of pressure to restrain him. And at first he giggled. But within 30 seconds or so, he was scrambling because he hated to be restrained. And I thought to myself in that moment with Cedar, that's me with God. Like if I'm honest before you and if you're honest with me, we don't want to be restrained. And so we have this mindset that God is restraining us and we want to break forth through our restraints. Why? Because we don't want a king. We want to be king. See, ultimately, that's what Cedar's saying. Free me, free me, free me, so I can have reign over this whole house and do whatever I want, however I want. But if we're honest, church, that's true for every individual in this room. And it goes all the way back to Genesis, when God planted kingship and queenship in our hearts. And then Satan came and said to us, what did he say to us in the garden? Oh, if you eat that, you'll become like God. And we wanted that. We ultimately wanted to become like God. That's what our first mother and our first father wanted. That's what they ate of the tree from because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to rule over everything and be subject to nothing. And so we, in our hearts, we don't just dislike God. We hate God. How do, we, how do we know that? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. This is what Paul says about us. And I want you to pay close attention to some of the words he is using to describe those who are apart from Christ. says this, we'll start in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Every time he talks about unbelievers in your Bibles, underline what he says. It's not a very nice description of us. So first he calls us ungodly, which means we're not like God at all. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, perhaps for a good person one would die, would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us, that's us, prior to being a believer, while we were yet what? So he calls us ungodly, and now he calls us sinners. Not too high marks, I want to be called. So we're ungodly and we're sinners that Christ died for us, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, which more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were what? Enemies of God. So he calls us ungodly. He calls us sinners. And now, he, man, now Paul, you're taking it a bit too far. Now you said I'm an enemy. That means we hated God. Like We're not neutral. Before coming to Christ, there is no neutrality in the, the, the carnal man. The carnal man has a hatred of God. We are enemies of God. And what do enemies want to do but to destroy who they hate? While we are yet enemies of God, He reconciled us to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we see that Paul says we have always hated God. We were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies of the cross. Paul shows us that very clear. Remember the Apostle Paul, his hatred and disdain for God. On his way to, he was on his way to kill Christians when God converted him. He was not in a neutral position riding a donkey. He was actively pursuing the hatred of God. And the truth is, you and I are just like Paul. We, we may not say it that way. We may not play it out that way. We may not want to kill Christians. But prior to coming to God, we could not stand him. And it goes back. Why could we not stand God? Because we believe in our hearts and minds that he is holding us hostage and in bondage. That is not true. We do not have a God that holds us in bondage. We have a God that has set laws and set decrees and set a way to live life so that we would live life to the full is what he tells us in John 10.10. 10. What, what does he tell us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30? He uses this idea of slavery and bondage but this is what he says turn over to matthew chapter 11 he says this in verse 28 come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. What he's talking about is those who think they are God. 
You see, when I think I'm God, I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders. Because then if I do this or I do that, then what I do and what I don't do depends on all the rest of the things that go on around me. If I think I'm really in control of all things, then I never live in freedom. Because then everything plays out like dominoes. If I hit this domino, then the, the effects are way far-reaching. Because is it not true if you've ever stacked up dominoes? I, I used to love playing with dominoes when I was a little kid. And it would drive me crazy. I'd get almost to the end, and somebody, maybe myself, would hit one domino, and the whole thing would be ruined. Well, that's how we think of life. We think of life as the butterfly effect. If this one thing, if I do this one thing, then blank will happen. I remember watching, um, I was a huge North Carolina fan growing up. And it was when North Carolina was playing the Fab Five in uh, the, the, the final game. Remember when Chris Weber traveled, they didn't call that, they called it a timeout. But I remember sitting there in angst. And the angst was, man, did I do everything right today? Because if I did something wrong, then God may punish me and not let my team win. I mean, am I the only one that had ever had crazy thoughts like that? I'm sitting as a teenage boy thinking, man, did I, did I dot all the I's and cross all the T's today and yesterday? Because I really want my team to win. And if they don't win, it's got to be because something I did here. It's crazy. But how much more do we do that in way more serious things? With our kids, with our spouse, with our jobs. You see, when I have those thoughts, then I don't really believe God's sovereign, sitting on a throne, ruling over everything. Because then everything that plays out depends on me, not on a sovereign God. You see, God's going to give you the promotion if he wants you to have the promotion. God's going to give you the spouse if he wants you to have the spouse. But the way we think is, I better sit on this throne and in control. God may not heal me of this because of this. No, no, God's going to do what God's going to do because we have a king that sits on the throne and you are not the king and I am not the king who sits on the throne. He says, I say this, all who labor, and are heavy laden. Come to me and find rest. But where's the rest found? In his yoke. The very thing that we hate. Is that not what the text says? They conspire together and say to each other, let us break out of these bondage and let's get rid of these cords and yet Jesus says no 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 life is found in the cords and in the yoke but we hate the king for that which takes us to the last point we require the king if we hate the king we have the king we absolutely must have a king or we're in deep, deep trouble. 
you see, the first two are true. We have a king. That's been established. We hate the king. That's established. But now we must come into submission to the king. We can't just simply say, yep, there's a king, and yep, I want to be it. And he says this in verses 10 through 12. Turn back to Psalm chapter 2. Now, therefore, kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. He gives us a warning. So the question I ask myself in coming to the text is, why would the writer warn us? Why is there a warning? He just told us there is a king. He just told us we don't want to be a king. And now he gives us a warning. I think the warning comes out of verse 4. Where it says, He who sits in heaven laughs. And the Lord holds them in his derision. God laughs at our mockery of him. Does that make sense? What he's saying is it's humorous to him that we mock him. Why is it humorous to God that we mock him? Because God knows he's sovereign and in control of all things. He knows he's all powerful. It's like this if you have children at all. How often do our kids say and do the, the dumbest things? Meaning, how often does your kid, has your kid ever said, I hate you? Am I the only one? Do you not just kind of chuckle at that? Like, okay. Like, you hate me. I'm still going to put food on your table. I'm still going to tuck you in bed. Like, as much as you hate me doesn't take my fathership out of your life. And that's what God is saying. You can hate me all you want, and it's very, very funny to me. Because I'm in control. And now he's going to warn them about what his control looks like. This is the scary part of the text to me. He says, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Kiss the king or kiss the son. Why are we to, I'm going to get to the application. Why are we to serve him? Why are we to rejoice? And why are we to kiss him? Because of this, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. We are to be warned because the wrath of God will come on all those who hate him. I know this doesn't sound like a great Christmas message. I'm going to get to the Christmas part of the message. But the warning is church. Let us not mock God. He says in the New Testament, God will not and cannot be mocked. And when we make fun of him and we uh, bring disparaging things against him and we hate him, he will not be mocked about that. And so if you're here today and you don't believe that Christ is the king of the universe, then you are in utter mockery of what he has said about himself. And in that mockery, there is great wrath coming for you. But here's the beauty of Christmas. He's given us a warning. And he's warned us against that. 
All the sirens are going off. And you that have served in the military, I remember in middle school sitting there watching CNN when the first time we bombed Iraq, and I remember watching um, Wolf Blitzer on the television on CNN. I remember hearing all the sirens going off like crazy. Those were warning signs that something was really, really bad about to happen there in Iraq. Well, those are the same warning signs that are going off to us today. And my great fear is we have turned a deaf ear to the warning sign. The warning is this. The great wrath of God will come. It is coming and it's coming quickly. That is scary to us. But here's the great promise in the text. It comes out of the very last thing. This is the reason we must have a king. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The king gives us refuge in this dark, dark world. But that only happened because God decided to send his son, Jesus, into the world to be a conquering warrior. He has defeated all things. We're not waiting for the great defeat. The great defeat happened at the cross. The great defeat happened when he, Jesus, lived 33 and a half years without sin and went to the cross on our behalf and absorbed the wrath that is going to come. Here's what one writer said about this. And I love it. There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. Let me say that one more time. There is no refuge from the wrath of God. If you're not in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God will be poured out on you. But if you are in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God has been satisfied on the death and resurrection of the greatest king to ever walk the planet. That is why we come and we celebrate. That is the reason that we anticipate. That is the reason why we call it Advent because we are waiting to be in the shelter of God in Christ Jesus when the wrath is poured out that we get to sit in that and see the wrath and not be affected by the wrath of God at all. Amen? But that's only because of Christmas. That only happened because Jesus was a baby in a manger and lived for 33 years. That's what we get to come and we have celebration for. And that's what we get to come and have joy about. Oh yes, the wrath is coming, but the joy is, man, I will not have to experience the wrath of God. Blessed, he says, are those who take refuge in Him. So church, I ask this question as a way of application this morning. Have you taken refuge in Christ Jesus? He tells us what taking refuge in him will look like in verses 11 and 12. Three things we must do when we take refuge in God. The application is this. We must serve him with fear. You see, when he invites us into his kingdom, he then invites us into service. Are you serving the king today? 
service looks like this. Evangelism. If you and I hold the knowledge that the wrath of God is coming, are we not to serve God by harrowing that great truth that the wrath of God is coming, but the greater truth is they can be saved from the wrath of God? Are we serving God that way this morning? The second is this. Do we rejoice with trembling? The word rejoice there means this. Do you worship God? And the word trembling means, are you in awe of God? So I beg the question, do we know who God is? Because I promise this, the more you know God, the more you will be in awe of God. And my prayer is this for every one of us in this place, that your knowledge of God expands your worship of God, which expands your fear of God, which expands your being in awe of God. Are we in reverence? To God. Or is he like elf on the shelf? You know what I mean by that? Elf on the shelf, he kind of gets into things and kind of it's cute and kind of playful. But he's got no power. Elf on the shelf has got power because of me and Jenny putting elf on the shelf. And I wonder, do we think God's like that? Are we in awe of God today? Do we serve God today? And the last one is this. It comes out of this last one. Kiss the Son. The word kiss in the old text had everything to do with a servant coming to the feet of the king and kissing the feet of the king to show how much submission he had to the king. My question is, have you submitted not only to Christ the Savior, but Christ the King? Are you kissing His feet out of submission and surrender to Him today? And lastly, turn to John chapter 17. This is what He does on our behalf as the king. You know what a king does? It speaks on behalf of the people. Is that not what a king does? When when a king goes before other kingdoms, he's speaking on behalf of all those that serve under him, but all those that he fights for. He is our representation. And so who is Christ representing us to? In John chapter 17, it tells us what our king is saying to the great creator on our behalf. He says it this way. You gave them to me out of the world. He's saying, you redeemed these people and have given them to me, the king. Verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. And I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those whom you have given me. That they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I I am glorified in them. 
And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one as we are one. This is the petition that he's going to God the Father on our behalf as our representation to saying to God, hey, don't forget about them because you remembered me, but don't forget about them. He goes on to say this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you keep them in the world and keep them from the evil one. He's going on behalf of us before a holy God and asking for our protection against the, the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth of your word as is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And not for their sake, but for mine, that they also may be sanctified. Church, do you understand that we have a king that represents us in front of a holy God? And he's asking for our sanctification and he's pleading that he would never let us go. There's nothing that we can do. We need the king to always be fighting for us. We not just have a king, but we have a great warrior king who's conquered all things. And we can rest in that truth today. And so I ask the question, will you submit to that king? Because when you understand that there is a king that is fighting for you on your behalf, he says this in 1 John, that he's making petitions for us. He's fighting for us. He's wrapping us in his glory. He's wrapping us in his holiness. He's wrapping us in his righteousness. And he's pleading on our behalf to a holy God. And I wonder, do we really view Christ the King? And do we kiss His feet and surrender to Him? And in surrender to Him, will we worship Him and will we serve Him? Now here's the deal. He is serving us. Let us pray. God, I pray that we would be wise and we would be warned this morning. That your great wrath is coming. But the great promise is this. That we can take refuge in you. Because you are the great king. You watch over us. You watch over your kingdom. And you protect your kingdom. God, just like the Israelites today, that the angel of death passed over all of Egypt, and those that did not have the blood on their doorpost, their child was taken from them in a moment. But God, Your Son and His death and His blood covers the, the doorframe of my heart. That when death would pass over me, they would see your blood, not mine, and he would keep on going. That's nothing I've done. That's your great righteousness and holiness. And I pray with all of my heart, God, that I would continue to be reminded of that. That you are a great king that fights on my behalf. And in turn, God, I will serve you with all of my heart and I will worship you with all of my being.
Because you are the greater king. And I am not king. I am but a servant to you. So lead us and guide us and remind us this Christmas that it doesn't, doesn't, wasn't just a baby lying in the manger. It was the King of kings and the Lord of lords was wrapped in swaddling clothes on my behalf. And God, I confess to you when I do not serve you wholeheartedly, and I do not trust you wholeheartedly. And I want to take the reins of my life. I confess that to you and say, God, help me stay surrendered to you. But expand my mind and my heart to know you more and more. Give me a hunger and a thirst for your word that displays your character to me, God. You are the great king. It saved a wretched soul like me that I despised you. I, I hated you. I was your enemy and yet you chose to die for me. I'm unworthy of that. But my unworthiness is trumped by your goodness and your kindness. Let us be reminded of that today. You are the great king. You sit on your throne, sovereign in control of all things. Anything that's going on in our life right now, God, you are not panicking. I want to say this to you, church. Christ has defeated lies. Christ has defeated cancer. Christ has defeated broken marriages. Christ has defeated depression. Christ has defeated anxiety. Christ has defeated hopelessness. Christ has defeated all things because He sits sovereign and in control on the throne of, of all of creation. Allow us to believe that, church. You are a good God. Amen. Amen. This morning is our Christ for Christmas offering. It's an offering.